So today I don't really have too much of a point to make about the music. I just like Brahms' lullaby. Um, this is the second symphony of uh, Brahms, the first movement, which would then evolve into the famous lullaby. Um, I figure something calm might be appropriate, considering how scary and awful things are about to get for poor Faust, and especially for poor Margareta. Um, keep in mind, though, that uh, it is important to notice that a lot of these tunes, a lot of this classical music, will eventually make the other direction, um, like we said last time, where some folklore and old peasant tunes that get turned into something official and classical. Sometimes it goes the other way around, too, and people end up singing the melodies of great symphonies to their kids to make them go to sleep. Hey, would you look at that? It only took us half of the book of Faust Part 1, and we finally stumbled across a plot. Um, I realize it's been a bit of a slog getting here, but Dang if this isn't where things get good. Um, so a lot happens in this third section between scenes 10 and 9. Uh, we meet Margarita, the, the romance proceeds very quickly. Um, Faust and Margarita are pretty well hopelessly in love with each other and we can already see that things are about to fall apart. But there is a lot to unpack here. Um, because all of a sudden it is all plot and no diversion, no no weird prologues, no you know side trips to the tavern, no witch's hut, um, no witch's sabbath, just a lot of character development um, and a lot of actual plot development. Um, so let's jump right in. Just as we focused on Faust in the first lecture and focused on Mephistopheles in the second lecture, the main thing I want to do today is focus on Margarita. Um, because she is a shockingly well-developed character, given the little bit of time that Goethe has to, de to sort of make her into a character in these scenes. Um, like, I know that she is probably not well-developed by contemporary standards. She is not, you know, a, a main character on the same level as Faust and Mephistopheles, again, because she doesn't show up for half the play. But again, you'll notice there's a lot of nuance to who she is. Um, she has depth in some surprising ways. Um, and we can see that depth even from the very first interaction that Faust has with her. Remember, Faust is coming off of the visit to the witch's hut. Uh, Mephistopheles slipped him that love potion and he saw that beautiful woman in the mirror and whatever happened, whatever is responsible, he is very primed um, for some sexual congress. Um, as Mephistopheles told us, any woman will be Helen to him. And this bear, bears out. Like, as soon as he's walking along in the street, he sees Margareta and says, My sweet young lady, if I may, I will escort you on your way. Which is, you know, pretty forward by 16th century, you know, uh, romantic standards. He's offering to take her home, which of course would tell him where she lives as well as you know be a rather inappropriate gesture um but notice margarita's response i'm not a lady and i'm not sweet i can get home on my own two feet like she just shuts him down and poetically at that like she is real quick on her feet she is not taking this crap from Faust. she is not going to accept some rando coming up to her and you know getting all sweet on her she is totally well defended for this 
um, she can handle herself is what it comes down to. Like as much as Margarita kind of comes off as this sort of innocent young girl, like Faust frequently sort of portrays her that way. She is capable. Um, she is a strong woman in her own right. Um, she is young. She is inexperienced. She is innocent in a way, but that, that innocence does not equate to naivete. Um, she knows about the world. She understands tragedy, suffering. Like, as we will see later, you know, her goodness is deep-seated. Um, like, she is a legitimately good person, and she is a leg legitimately strong person in her goodness. Um, and notice, like, they immediately start talking about her. At this point, again, Faust only sees her as, you know a piece of tail like he is totally objectifying her um he is totally interested in, in her purely for sexual reasons because of the love potion or his lust or whatever you want to understand it as um so his response to you know getting completely shut down by the more than capable margarita um is by god but that's a lovely girl more lovely than i've ever met so virtuous so decent yet a touch of sauciness as well he gets her right. She is virtuous, she is decent, and she is a little saucy. Um, but, you know, he's had literally one interaction with her. They've exchanged one line at this point. So, you know, he's obviously making her out to be something that she is, but that he can't possibly know. Her lips so red, her cheeks so bright, all my life I'll not forget that sight. It stirred my very heart to see her eyes cast down so modestly, and how she put me in my place with so much charm and so much grace. Like, it's hot that she shut him down as hard as she did. Which, you know, is not great as far as, like, sexual politics are concerned, but is definitely a phenomenon with that we observe all the time. Um, strong women are attractive to men if they are not overly intimidating. So Faust demands of Mephistopheles, you must get that girl for me. Now, Mephistopheles has pretty much agreed. This is part of his plan. Like, when t he took Faust to the witch's hut in the first place, the idea was he was going to get Faust to seduce some girl, and he was going to help make that happen, and then that would somehow like lead to whatever plot Mephistopheles had in place. Now it isn't entirely clear whether Margareta is the girl Mephistopheles intended or not. Um, on the one hand, it seems like it's not intentional. Mephistopheles is kind of unnerved by the way that this whole romance tends to go, the trajectory that it takes. There seem to be several places where Mephistopheles is caught off guard by Margareta. Um, this is one of them. So, you know, Mephistopheles is like, which girl? Apparently he was looking the other way and completely missed Faust falling madly in love with Margareta in, you know, one line of dialogue. And Faust says, she's just gone by. And Mephistopheles responds, ah, yes, she's just been making her confession. Her priest gave her full absolution. I sneaked up and was listening. She's a poor, innocent little thing with nothing whatever to confess. I've no power over her, I fear. See, Mephistopheles, if she was, you know, an ill-behaved woman or a woman of loose morality, presumably Mephistopheles would have no problem sinking his teeth into her, bringing her to Faust, and letting Faust have his way with her. But Margareta... Margareta is protected. Um, notice, she was just making confession. She just saw the priest, she just confessed all her sins, the priest gave her full absolution... 
and she didn't even have anything to confess. Like, Margareta's sins are basically inflated. Like, she's trying to come up with something to confess, even though she really hasn't done anything wrong. Like, the priest forgives her, but mostly as a technicality. Um, and importantly, Mephistopheles stresses he has no power over her. Like, she is virtually sinless, especially after talking to the priest. Like, she is now holy, and devils can't do anything to her. So the first sort of sense that we get is Mephistopheles would rather Faust fall in love with somebody easier to manage. Uh, Margareta is pretty close to being pure, and therefore Mephistopheles can't really do anything about it. And when Faust starts, you know, shouting, you know, why not? She's past her 14th year. Why can't you get her for me? She seems old enough. Mephistopheles is like, dude, you know, not everybody is as easy to, to, con to like convert to seduce so come this is randy andy talk he said you leave no flower on its stalk pluck every favor every prize that's pleased your self-conceited eyes but some things have to be eschewed mephistopheles is like okay look yes i know i am the devil and we are in this arrangement and you are faust faust who strives for everything all of the time we get it seriously not this girl like there are some girls that you are more than welcome to chase after, and I will absolutely help you get them. This one, I can't do anything about. Let's, let's just leave this one alone and find somebody else. But Faust says, Now hear me, Dr. Rectitude. Leave out the legal preachment stuff and let me tell you, either by tonight that sweet young thing shall lie between my arms, or you and I will have been together long enough. This poses a problem for Mephistopheles. The whole arrangement that he and Faust has basically says, you know, Mephistopheles is there to serve Faust. Faust is going to try and, like, do all of the things and never be satisfied with any one of them. But in order for Mephistopheles to win the bet, in order to, for him to win the wager, he has to be able to meet Faust's needs. Like, obviously, if there is something legitimately impossible, maybe that's another matter entirely, but here Faust is making a pretty reasonable claim, especially because Mephistopheles was insisting that he fall in love. So all that Mephistopheles can do is sort of, like, draw it out a bit, stall for time. Be practical, my dear good sir. I need two weeks of sniffing round to find out how to get at her. And Faust is like, dude, two weeks? That child? Why, I, I'll be bound if I had even half a day, I'd not need the devil to get my way. So Faust is obviously very forward about this, and notice, like, as much as this is highfalutin poetry and does not seem terribly, like, racy, for the 18th century when Goethe is writing, this is absolutely some of the most sexually explicit stuff that anyone would encounter. Faust is doing Randy Andy talk, as Mephistopheles puts it. Like, he is 100% dead set on seducing this woman with zero consequences, not with any intention of marrying her, just because, again, like, he's got a demon friend. Presumably, he should be able to work that out for them. So, this is very direct. This is very straightforward, and this would have been shocking to the people, you know, listening, watching this play at the, at the time. Um, Faust is being completely reprehensible here. All he wants is sex. Um, and this is not acceptable behavior in a world where sex is tied so deeply to economic 
favor and to morality and to Christianity and everything else that's going on. Um, this is not okay. Now, Mephistopheles ultimately wins the argument about stalling, not by, like, appealing to Faust's better nature or even arguing that he is not powerful enough to do it. Again, Faust is insisting, like, give me five minutes with her, I'll seduce her, because she's young and naive and doesn't know what's going on. Mephistopheles instead appeals to something very Faustian. Well, now you're almost talking French, but with respect, take my advice. Why bustle so to bed the wench? Your pleasure with her will be twice as keen after long preparation and complicated titillation to make her willing and soft to the touch. In Italian tales, you'll have read as much. Again, it's very racy. It's very French or Italian, as Mephistopheles and uh, sort of emphasizes here um, but also notice that Mephistopheles uses the Faustian method to sort of convince him Faust has always been about you know he wants the fruit that withers on the vine he wants to strive and not accomplish things the fame that is fleeting the riches that disintegrate the woman who will immediately leave his bed Mephistopheles says okay if you are so interested in the striving then why would I give you instant gratification for this lust of yours let's draw this out if you work at it a little bit more the ultimate consummation of your desire will be that much better and Faust is willing to let this one go after a little bit more convincing um but notice too again Part of this is to cover up for the fact that Mephistopheles can't do this. Like, he can't just snap his fingers and make Margareta fall in love with Faust. Presumably he could if she was, you know, less virtuous, less well-protected, less careful about saying her prayers and going to confession and, you know, getting absolution from the priest. Um, again, Margareta is special in some way. And it's because she's special that Faust wants her. Like, as he says, like, the virtue is one of the things that he finds so attractive about her. As much as he can't at all possibly appreciate her virtue at this point, like, this early on in their relationship, nonetheless, that appearance of virtue, that appearance of modesty, that, you know, good Christian girl following all of her, you know, parents' orders and her priest's orders and so on and so forth, that's desirable to Faust. Faust wants to despoil it in some ways, which makes him all the more awful, but we'll get to that. So notice that the plan takes a pretty freaking creepy turn. Um, what Faust commands is that, like, you will get me to her. Um, that I, you know, notice that, that line that he says, the, hear me, Dr. Rectitude, tonight that sweet young thing shall lie between my arms. That is not something Mephistopheles can pull off, but he can absolutely take Faust to her room when she's not there, which is what ultimately happens. Now, in the next scene, in scene 11, in Margareta's room, we start with a glimpse of Margareta herself. And notice, this just adds yet another dimension to her character. Like, as much as this is just this tiny little throwaway passage, notice her, notice her lines here. I'd like to find out, I must say, who that gentleman was today. A handsome man, I do admit, and a nobleman by the looks of it. I could tell by something in his eyes, and he wouldn't have had the cheek otherwise. Margareta, as much as she seems to dismiss Faust out of hand, like, 
cut him down with a single line at the very, you know, first time that they meet, she's still thinking about him, even after the fact. As much as she shuts him down and doesn't seem to pay any attention to him at all, she's bothered by him. She's taken with him. She says, you know, that he's handsome, that he's noble, or at least he seems to look like it. Something about his eyes, something about the fact that he was able to, you know, approach and proposition her so confidently. Margaret is kind of into it. Just a bit. Like, she knows she shouldn't be, and she'll remark on that later. Um, but at the same time, there's something kind of enticing about Faust. Something enticing about his confidence. Something enticing about the fact that he was handsome and direct and kind of inappropriate. Margareta is not a stone. Like, as much as it's easy to sort of see her as this perfect, pure child, totally innocent and so on, she's not. She's, like I said, a grown woman. She is tempted by this. She is flattered by his attention. Um, and this only sort of gets greater as they go on. But as soon as she leaves the room, Faust and Mephistopheles bust in, like, to her room while she's not around. Um, and yes, this is absolutely as creepy as it sounds. Like, Faust or Goethe is not, you know, de-emphasizing this. If anything, it was way creepier in the 18th century than it would be for you to, you know, have some guy who's interested in you or some girl who's interested in you bust into your bedroom and rifle through your underwear drawer. Like, that's the level of creepiness that we're dealing with here, if not more. But notice... On some level, this is also kind of poetic. This is the weird sort of dichotomy that Goethe is playing with here. On the one hand, it is entirely inappropriate for Faust to be there. On another hand, he is surprisingly respectful once he's there. Notice, like, he's really thrilled about being here. Like, he's, you know, not necessarily just creepy, though there is a creepy element to it, but he's also respectful, worshipful. He, you know, knows that this is a violation and at the same time is sort of careful about the way that it happens. Look at the way he talks about this room. Welcome, sweet twilight, shining dim all through this sanctuary. Now let love's sweet pain that lives on hope's refreshing dew seize and consume my heart again. How this whole place breathes deep content and order and tranquility. What riches in this poverty? What happiness in this imprisonment? Notice he admires Margareta. He sees that she has made a lot of a little. She doesn't have a lot of money, but she's made this place comfortable. She doesn't seem to have a whole lot of, like, substance in the sense of, like, money and, you know, economic fortitude and, like, not a lot of family connections, not a lot of friends, and yet she seems happy. She's stuck here. She's sort of trapped in her tiny little situation, in her relative poverty, but she's made happiness out of that imprisonment. He respects that as well. Notice, too, though, that this is our second reference to John, Don Juan that he makes. So right around line 2715, he says, And I, what purpose brings me? What profound emotion stirs me? What did I come here to do? Why do I sigh, poor wretch? Am I now Faust or not? He says to himself, you know, Why am I so wrapped up in this person? Like, why am I so caught up in this? 
I'm Faust. I, my whole nature is to strive to not be satisfied, to not, you know, to be torn between the divine on the one hand and the, the mundane and the, the earthy on the other. And now, like, I'm, I'm losing my mind over this girl. Why? Like, what about her is sort of causing me to leave my senses? Um, is there some magic hovering around me here? I was resolved. My lust brooked no delay. And now, in dreams of love, I wilt and melt away. Are we mere playthings of the atmosphere? Faust notices that he's, he's more invested in Margarita than he originally thought was appropriate. Now, if he was just after her sexually, it wouldn't bother him to be in this room. It, it, like, he would just be trying to take advantage of the situation. He would just indulge in the pleasure and that would be it. But he feels uncomfortable. He feels like he's falling too hard, too fast, and too deeply. This isn't just lust. It's love. He doesn't know how it's love. It doesn't make any sense at all that it's love. By any standard of the imagination, this can't possibly be love. And yet that's what he feels. He feels something far deeper than just pure physical attraction. He feels reverential in this place, as though the room of Margareta is a holy sanctuary, as he said before. If she came in this instant, ah, oh, my sweet, how she would punish me. How small the great Don Juan would feel, how he would fall in tears of languor at her feet. Here's our Don Juan reference, and notice how even Don Juan in this situation would fall humbled by Margareta. This is not a sort of titillation image that he's describing here, how she would punish me. This is not like a S&M thing. This is, she would come in and actually be mad and Faust would be upset about it, would be, would feel remorse, would actually want to apologize, to beg her forgiveness, and Don Juan would do the same. Don Juan, who we're used to seeing, you know, like, seducing women, always getting himself out of a bad situation, never dropping his constant suave attitude, Faust is saying that even Don Juan would be humbled by Margareta. That there is something so good, so pure, so right about her that even Don Juan would have to back off in order to, you know, properly do homage to this beautiful, wonderful woman. Now, we should take this with a grain of salt, though. Like, remember, you know, everyone confuses love for lust. This is fairly normal. Like... Throughout the 18th century, in a world where there really isn't a room for casual sexual congress, like, committing oneself to another in terms of, like, I will give you my eternal love, and my love will always be there for you. Like, I will always, always, like, my love transcends time and space. Like, this is how we usually understand love in this period. Because, again, so much of convincing a woman or a man to, you know, spend the rest of your life with them would involve faithfulness, never giving up on it. There's no outlet for, like, casual sexuality. And even today, you know, we frequently think that we have something deep and meaningful with a person that really it's just our hormones talking. But Faust seems to recognize some kind of distinction here, and we need to sort of be aware of both sides of this. On the one hand, it is entirely possible that it is just lust. 
On the other hand, it is entirely possible that Faust really has fallen for her. But either way, there's something very wrong about all this. So as the whole plot here, like the whole reason why they're in the room in the first place is Mephistopheles is planting a box of jewels. Um, like Faust has told him to go and find the finest jewelry that he can. And here we have like the first Mephistophelian superpower in the same vein as Dr. Faustus. Like Dr. Faustus is always getting uh, Mephistopheles to like go find jewels or fruit or something from far away and bring it here. Now Goethe's Faust does the same thing. Get me jewels so I can give them to Margareta. Not so I can keep them for myself or show them off but so I can get them for Margareta, so I can continue to seduce her. So Mephistopheles does this, he puts the jewel case in the cupboard, and so on. Margareta comes in, and we have this very strange scene. So Margareta comes in with her lamp and says, it's so hot and sultry in here somehow, and yet it's quite cool outside just now. Margareta is aware of the fact like, not consciously, but subconsciously, she knows that something's wrong. She feels like the room is warmer than it should be, presumably because Mephistopheles and Faust were literally just in it, like she can detect their body heat in a, in a building that is otherwise cold. I've got a feeling something's wrong, she says. I hope my mother won't be long. It's a sort of scare coming over me. What a silly baby I must be. She dismisses it. You know, there's no reason to think that something's wrong. She just has this weird feeling. So she dismisses it as fear, and then then she undresses. Like, she takes off her clothes and gets into her nightgown or whatever. She's, you know, changing into her evening clothes, probably getting ready to go to bed. And while she undresses, she sings this song. And notice the song. Like, the song gives us a real insight into what's going on in Margareta's mind here. So she sings, There once was a king of Thule, of the no far north land of old. His dying lady he loved so truly she gave him a cup of gold. There was no thing so dear to the king, and every time he wept as he drained that cup at every banqueting, so truly his faith he kept. And at last, they say, on his dying day, his kingdom was willed and told, and his son and heir got all his share, but the king kept the cup of gold. They feasted long with wine and song, and there with his knight sat he, in the ancestral hall, in his castle tall on the cliffs high over the sea. The old man still drank as his life's flame sank, then above the waves he stood, and the sacred cup he raised it up and threw it down to the raging flood. He watched it fall to the distant shore and sink in the waters deep, and never a drop that king drank more, for he'd closed his eyes to sleep. Notice what she emphasizes in the song. There's this king, and the king has this beautiful wife who he loves so much that when she dies, she gives him this golden cup. And he uses that cup exclusively. He never drinks from any other cup, and he even weeps when he drinks from it at feasts and banquets. And then on the day that he dies, he takes his last drink from the cup, flings it into the sea where no one will ever drink from it again, and dies without ever having drunk from any other vessel. This is an image of profound faithfulness. Like, this is a man who was so faithful to his wife that the gift that, he gave, that she gave him, he would not use any other instrument. He would never consider another woman, another cup. He would never 
allow himself to feel the same way about another person, to value something the same way as he values this last gift from her, to the point that he dies, and dies casting it away so there would they would never no one would ever drink from that cup either. They are bound, perfectly faithful. This is an image of what Margareta understands love to look like. 100% unwavering faithfulness from life to death. Even after the wife has died, presumably the king would have leave to go marry someone else, and he doesn't. He won't even drink from another cup. That's how much he cares for his wife. That's how much he values her. For Margareta, that's what love is. That's what love is supposed to look like. And importantly for us, we know that that's not what Faust is here for. Like, as much as Faust seems to be reevaluating his decisions, sort of rethinking the feelings that he has for Margareta, and now questioning himself, why do I feel like this? This was just supposed to be a fling. This was just supposed to be lust. This was just supposed to be a one-off, you know, Mephistopheles gets me the girl, we have a good time, and we call it move on. And yet now Faust is questioning that. But we are nowhere near the level of fidelity that Margareta not only talks about here, but expects. This is what the only way that she can imagine love is through this commitment, through this incredible, unending faithfulness. But notice, too, the situation. She is singing this while undressing. She is literally getting naked. And this is a play, like... There is a woman singing this song, getting naked, on stage. And what's more, like Faust and, and Mephistopheles, they have just slunk outside the window. Like, you'll notice the, the stage direction there, they leave. The implication is almost certainly that they went out the window because, again, there's only one entrance into the room, there's only the one door, or if there is another door, then it's some other part of the house. Either way, they're right there. They are also watching. They are watching, and we are watching, and as much as it is absolutely creepy that they are, like, voyeuristically hanging out in Margareta's room and presumably listening to Margareta sing this song, so are we. Like, we as the readers in this case, but also anyone who watches this as a play, and that's what it's intended to be as. Like, Gerda is staging this. There is literally a naked woman on stage singing this song. We are literally watching her do it in a situation that should be private for her. She should be in her bedroom. The reason why she feels comfortable undressing and singing is because she believes she's alone, and she's not. We are there, Faust is there, Mephistopheles is there. Like, literally, there is a huge audience watching this happen. And there's something really messed up about it. Like, Goethe knows that it's messed up. Margarita, to some degree, knows that it's messed up, even if she's kind of oblivious to most of this happening. She feels uncomfortable. Something is wrong. A violation is taking place here. And we, the audience, are complicit in it. So, there's something very weird about the relationship, and you're supposed to think that there's something really weird about the relationship. It's only going to get weirder from here. Now, Margarita does find the jewelry box here. And she's excited about it. Like, she doesn't know what to make of it, but she is thrilled. However did this pretty box get here, she says. I left the cupboard locked. How very queer. Whatever can be in it. Perhaps my mother lent some money on it, and it's meant as a security. Oh dear, it's got a ribbon with a little key. I think I'll open it just to see. What's this? 
Oh, God in heaven, just look, I've never seen such things before. These jewels would be what a princess wore at the highest feast in the feast day book. I wonder how that necklace would suit me. Whose can these wonderful things be? Notice, Margareta kind of lives in a fantasy world. Like, her version of love is the fidelity of the king of Thule to his dead wife. Likewise, as soon as she opens up the jewelry box, she's immediately thinking of herself in terms of the princess. If even the earrings were only mine, my, what a difference it makes. We young girls have to learn it takes more than just beauty. That's all very fine. But everyone just says she's pretty, and they seem to say it out of pity. Gold's all they care about. Gold's wanted everywhere. For us poor folk, there's none to spare, she says. She is living in a fantasy world and also wildly pragmatic about it. Like, notice the weird dichotomy in this character that Goethe is building for us. On the one hand... Margarita can absolutely shut down Faust at a, at a word. Like, she is that pragmatic. She knows that he's trying to, to mess with her, trying to seduce her. She won't have it, so she just dismisses him at a word. But she's still interested. She's still enticed. Some part of her appreciates it, is flattered by it, wants to see where it would go. Likewise, here we have this little girl in her room singing about the etern eternality of love, like the perfect fidelity that love embodies. She is not talking about, you know, lust or being taken advantage of. And yet, she is very aware of the fact that girls are only liked because of the finery they wear. Like, she says that people say that she is pretty out of pity, it seems as though that's just a consolation for the fact that she has no gold, no jewels, no fancy earrings, no fancy dresses, that being poor, it doesn't matter how pretty she is. She's weirdly prescient about that. She lives in her fantasy world of, you know, kings who never give up drinking from the cup they gave her, but she is also very aware of the fact that her circumstances are bad. And that people who say that they love her are probably just trying to get into her pants. That people who, you know, say they admire a girl's beauty are really just interested in the, the fancy garments and jewels that they wear. She is simultaneously very innocent and also very aware that she is not a normal protagonist, like not a normal love interest. She is not a Mary Sue. She is not a manic pixie dream girl. She is not a trope. She is a person, like with all the things that personhood goes along with, including the fact that we kind of frequently can't figure out what we want or what we need. She's got contradictions to her, not like contradictions is in she does things that are against her character but in the sense that her character is robust enough to admit of a lot of different behaviors this is also pretty weird for the 18th century like as much as it's weird to find a character as rich as gretchen now it's very weird in goethe's day so i want to sort of acknowledge that like it's not perfect not by any extent of the imagination but it is richer than you might expect now Margarita's response to getting the jewels, obviously she's very excited about them, she's really happy to have them, but then she does something very typically Margarita. She gives them to her mom. So we see in the next scene, Mar Mephistopheles is really angry about the situation. Like, he is basically swearing 
at the beginning of the of the scene by the pangs of despised love by the fires of hell i wish i knew something worse to curse it as well and then when he explains to faust what he's upset about those jewels for gretchen that i got a priest has been and swiped the lot her mother took one look and hey she had the horrors straight away that woman's got a good nose all right snuffling her prayer book day and night with any commodity she can tell profane from sacred by the smell and as for those jewels she knew soon enough there was something unholy about that stuff like Margarita, Margarita's mother apparently is very pious. She is always in her prayer book, Mephistopheles says. She, too, is constantly going to the priest and confessing sins that really are kind of blown out of proportion and that probably could have waited for a while. She and Margarita both are very pious, in short. So when Margarita's mother finds out about the jewels, presumably because Margarita told her about them, because... You know, Margarita's an honest person and therefore wouldn't want to hide things from her mother. She gets wise and demands that the priest take a look at them. My child, she exclaimed, ill-gotten wealth poisons one's spiritual health. To God's blessed mother it must be given, and she will reward us with manna from heaven. How Meg's face fell, poor little minx. It's a gift horse, after all, she thinks, and whoever so kindly brought it, how can there be anything godless about such a man? Ma sends for the priest, and he, by glory, has no sooner heard their little story and studied the spoils with, quite, with great delight than he says, Dear ladies, you are quite right. Now, immediately Margarita's mother summons the priest. She wants him to have a look at it. She immediately suspects the jewels of having some unholy demonic origin. And it's note worth noting that even Mephistopheles admits, yeah, they do. Like, he's a demon, he brought them the jewels. This is clearly a temptation for the sake of seducing Margarita, so she'll sleep with Faust. Obviously, this is bad news all the way around. Margarita and her mother are 100% right to question this gift and then to, like, get rid of it as soon as possible. That is the most logical thing to do in this case. Notice that Margarita's mother says ill-gotten wealth poisons one's spiritual health. That is exactly what Mephistopheles was counting on. Like, he was hoping to seduce Margarita with this swanky, this swanky jewelry, and it probably would have worked if it wasn't for the fact that Margarita was so determined to, you know, be decent and tell her mother about it. She wouldn't question that. But notice, too, the behavior of the priest here. Then he says, Dear ladies, you are quite right. Who resists the tempter shall gain a crown. The church can digest all manner of meat. It's never been known to overeat, although it has gulped whole empires down. Holy church's stomach alone can take ill-gotten goods without stomach ache. This is definitely Goethe poking fun at the church here. Um, notice, the jewels are obviously bad. Like, Margarita's mother points this out. She's like, ill-gotten wealth will make us, you know, spiritually dead. This is a bad thing. We need to get rid of them. Let's have the priest look at them. And the priest's immediate response is, yep, you are absolutely right. These are clearly unholy. They're clearly a bad deal. And I will take them off your hands because the church can totally just take this wealth and do what they want with it. Notice the justification. Holy church's stomach alone can take ill-gotten goods without stomach ache. That's kind of silly. Like, it's theologically backed up pretty obviously by the fact that, you know, we are the church, we can purify these things, we can we can make them good. But notice that the argument here isn't, you know, we'll fix the, the curse on them, we'll make them not demonic, but rather the church is so holy that apparently, like, you they, it won't be impurified by the, by the bad jewels. 
Notice that it's been presented as the church can digest all manner of meat. It's never been known to overeat, although it has gulped whole empires down. The Catholic Church is fairly famous for, you know, its incredible power during the medieval period. The fact that it was able to, like, topple whole empires, swallow whole swaths of territory. Goethe is sort of pointing out here that there's a clear hypocrisy about the church. If Margarita and her mother is right, and P.S., they are, then the jewels are bad news and probably they should be, like, chucked into the fire or chucked back into the ocean where they came from or, you know, gotten rid of however they can. But, of course, the church, the church wants the money. So we'll just, you know, take it and it's fine because it's the church. So who cares? It's dodgy. And Mephistopheles emphasizes the dodginess of the situation. And Faust does too. Like, Faust also points out that plenty of kings and Jews, sorry folks, it's Jews were associated with, like, money lending and greed at this point in history. Once again, it's casual racism, but at the very least, this is socially acceptable casual racism in the 18th century. That's not a, like, complex thing that I want to sort of tease out here, although we can absolutely talk about it in class, or feel free to email me about it if you want to have that discussion. Um, it's common, he says, many a king and Jew has a well-filled belly of that kind, too. The idea being that many, many people have justified their greed in a similar fashion. Like, oh yes, wealth is bad, but I can handle it. Like, give me the, the wealth, I'll totally accept the burden of sinful, sinful material wealth, um, and become wealthier, because... I can handle it. Like, that's just nonsense. Um, now notice, like, the ultimate solution to this, at least to progress the plot along, is Faust just gets more jewels. Um, so, you know, Faust demands, like, get more jewels for my suite, and Mephistopheles has to, like, run off and find another pile of jewels even better than the first one. And notice this one, this one Margarita doesn't tell her mom about. This is the first sort of chink in the armor of Margarita's purity and holiness. So we see in scene 13, Margarita is visiting Martha. Like, she goes over to Martha, her neighbor's house. They are apparently close friends. And Margarita says, Martha, I feel quite faint. There's been this second box. I found it in my cupboard there, an, an ebony case of the grandest jewels you ever saw, much richer than the one before. And Martha, who is very pragmatic, and not nearly as pious, responds, Now this time you mustn't tell your mother, or the priest will get it just like the other. And Margarita starts trying on the jewels, and they start celebrating them in short. Like, let's both try them on. Let's both, you know, do a dress-up, do, you know, a fashion show in short. Um, we have a moment between Margarita and Martha, right before Mephistopheles busts in. Um... Now, I want to stress, this is the first time that we see Margarita sort of falling victim to the temptation. The seduction is starting to take. Um, as much as she is holy and pious, as much as she is protected, as much as she is good and virtuous, notice that the reason why she ultimately, like, accepts the jewels is because she is sort of exposed to the hypocrisy of the church. 
as much as she is faithful to God, as much as she is faithful to the priests and to the church and to her confession and all of this, notice that the priest doesn't share this. Pre the priest just takes the jewels. Like, in theory, he should also get rid of them. But, and she notices this in all likelihood. She seems to internalize this. When Martha says, better protect the jewels and not let the priest get them, Mar Mar Margarita agrees. It would be wrong to let the priest get them because the priest is kind of a jackass. He is absolutely taking advantage of the situation. Um, there is something greedy about the priest. And honestly, as, you know, as Margarita stressed earlier, like, there is this clear discrepancy between women who have gold and finery and women who don't. This could improve Margarita's situation. It's better for her to have the jewels than it is for the priest to have the jewels, if somebody's going to have them. Like, if we all agree that they are safe enough for the church to have, then presumably they should be safe enough for Margarita to have as well. Um, that's not wrong. She's absolutely right to want to sort of elevate her situation, to give herself a chance at finding a good husband, to be not just pretty, but pretty with the gold that everyone actually, in fact, admires. Um, there's some, there's a good justification here, even though it ultimately ends up doing more harm than good. Now, notice, too, the way that Mephistopheles and Martha interact in this scene. Um, Mephistopheles has this kind of weird parallel relationship with Martha going on at the same time as Faust is trying to seduce Margareta. Um, Martha is a woman of the world. She is not, you know, innocent in the way that, that, uh, Margareta is. She is not sort of in her fantasy land. She doesn't sing songs about kings who were always faithful to their wives. Martha is already married. Um, her husband has apparently taken off and has been away for quite a long time. Um, but in the, the way that Mephistopheles sort of works his way into the relationship between Margarita and Martha is by announcing Martha's husband's death. Um, so he says, and notice the way that he phrases it. The scene is weirdly comic in like a gallows humor kind of way. Um, so... At line 2910, and you'll notice Mephistopheles does this a lot throughout the scene as well, why it's not just the jewels that are fine, he says to Margareta. You have a manner, a look in your eyes. Um, he flatters Margareta. Like, he emphasizes, oh, those are some very nice jewels. Somebody who cares about you a lot must have given them to you. Hink, tint, wink, wink, nod, nod. Like, he's definitely doing his work for Faust here, for sure. But notice the way that he does it. Um, so he says, then I may stay? What a pleasant surprise. Um, so Martha says, no, I'm sure your business is interesting. And Mephistopheles says, I hope you'll pardon the news I bring. I'm sorry to grieve you at our first meeting. Your husband is dead and sends his greeting. Notice the sort of silly approach here. On the one hand, he's like very solemn about it. You know, I have some bad news for you. I, I have no doubt that you will be grieved by what I have to tell you. Your husband is dead and sends his greeting. Like... There's something kind of absurd about the idea of the dead guy sending his greeting just like it's, you know, somebody who just moved to town. And Martha seems to sort of take this in stride. So Martha says, what, dead, my true love? Alas, the day, my husband's dead, I shall pass away. And she's upset. Like, oh no, my husband is dead. Like, where will I get my money? How will I, you know, support myself at this point? But notice, too, that in addition to Margarita trying to comfort Martha, she also has her own moment here, her own hesitation. 
She says, I hope I shall never love. I know it would kill me with grief to lose someone so. Like we saw with her song about the King of Thule, she seems to be emphasizing that that level of devotion, that level of commitment, that's dangerous. She recognizes that. Again, as much as she is an innocent, as much as she is like indulging in this fantasy, and as much as this assumption that she would grieve is rooted in that fantasy, at the same time, she sees the practicality of the situation, that it would hurt to love someone and then lose them. But Mephistopheles' response is rather telling as well. Joy and grief need each other. They can't be parted, he says. And while it's rare for us to get actual wisdom from Mephistopheles, it is kind of important to note that. You can't have one without the other. The, the king of Thule was very happy to be married to his wife. And then he was very sad when she died. Both were appropriate. Both need the other. You cannot have joy without the very real risk of grief. And if without the very real risk of grief, you can't have joy. Um, in order to make a commitment of that magnitude, there will be disappointment. There will be upset of equally great magnitude. Now, Martha wants more information about her husband's death. And notice the way that her, her attitude fluctuates, how it sort of rejects what Margarita understands about love, how Martha's understanding of love is very realistic by contrast. So she asks, Good sir, pray tell me how he died. And Mephistopheles says, In Padua, by St. Anthony's side, there they interred your late departed in a spot well suited by God's grace to be his last cool resting place. And Martha, who is no fool, asks, Have you brought nothing else for me? Presumably she wants, you know, her husband's last effects his stuff like he went off with a bunch of money where's the money she wants to know Mephistopheles says ah yes he requests you solemnly to have 300 masses sung for his repose for the rest my hands are empty I fear and Martha is a bit peeved what no old metal not a souvenir or trinket any poor apprentice will lay by stuffed in his satchel and would rather die in penury than sell or lose Martha's asking about the swag come on he had to have something on him like a pocket watch or a medal or you know something that she could at least pawn for a couple of a couple of bucks or something i much regret it ma'am but truthfully your husband wasn't one to waste his property and he rued his faults but his luck he cursed the second more bitterly than the first they're getting a bit wry here mephistopheles is having some fun in this situation so the fact that he rude his faults, that he bemoaned his, his weaknesses, like possibly his drunkenness or, or his, you know, ha habit with loose women, um, but his luck he cursed, and he cursed his luck more than he rude his faults. He was more upset at the way he was treated than the way he treated others, in short. Um, now, Margarita is upset about the ill luck, but Mephistopheles goes on, um... If a husband won't do, then a lover might. Why not? It's life's greatest blessing and pleasure to lie in the arms of so sweet a treasure. Margarita, as much as she is sort of like thinking about Martha in this situation, trying to sort of like sympathize with, with her loss, Mephistopheles is constantly pushing her. Okay, well, you don't want to fall in love then? That's understandable. Maybe you don't want to be committed. Why not take a lover then? That's a fun time and doesn't require nearly as much commitment. And Margarita's like, that's not the custom here. That's not how we do things. 
Uh, but Martha wants more information, so Mephistopheles goes on. I stood by his deathbed. It was pretty filthy, it must be said. But he died as a Christian, on half-rotten straw. His sins were absolved, though he felt he had many more. I hate myself, he cried, for what I've done. Away from my trade, away from my wife to run. I'm tormented by that memory. If only she could forgive me in this life. So Mephistopheles gives her this picture of her husband on his deathbed, wishing that he had lived his life differently, wishing that he hadn't used her so poorly, and she's weeping. Oh, he's long been forgiven. But then Mephistopheles adds, but God knows she was more to blame than me. And Martha immediately turns on a dime. Why, that's a lie. Why, what, a lie at the point of his death? As soon as Mephistopheles portrays him as sympathetic, as apologizing, as begging forgiveness, Martha is all about it. Like, oh man, I can't believe I lost my husband this way. He was such a good man. But as soon as Mephistopheles says that her husband turned on her, she turns on him. Um, he was delirious at his last breath, he says, if I am any judge of such events. I had my time cut out, he said, providing her with children, then with bread, which meant bread in the very widest sense, and then I got no peace to eat my share. And Martha's like, had he forgotten all my faithful loving care? What about me? I did my part. What? And now he just forgets me? He's lying in his deathbed far, far away, and he just like doesn't even care about all the stuff I did for him? And Mephistopheles even goes farther. Why, no, he had remembered that all right. He told me, when we sailed away from Malta for my wife and brats, I said a fervent prayer, and by heaven's will, our luck began to alter. We took a Turkish ship and boarded her, the mighty sultan's treasure ship. We fought them bravely and deserved our prize. Apparently, during this whole adventure, as much as he's, you know, praying for his wife and brats... As soon as he is rid of her, they immediately have a stroke of good luck. They've come across this treasure ship. They get all of this money. And Martha's like, well, what did he do with the money? And Mephistopheles says, who knows now where the four winds carried it. He fell in with a lovely lady friend in Naples, visiting the place for fun. And fun he got. The kindnesses she'd done, they left their mark on him till his life's end. So he got all this money and gave it all to some hussy at some port in Naples. And Martha loses it. The scoundrel stealing his own children's bread. Not even wanton poverty could stop his vices and debauchery. So Mephistopheles advises her, well, there you are, you see. So now he's dead. If I were in your place, you know, I'd mourn him for a decent 12 months. Then, having looked round a little, choose another bow. Get remarried, Mephistopheles says. Wait 12 months, proper mourning period, marry somebody else. And Martha's kind of all right with that. Notice that the complication of this scene, that on the one hand, Martha really did love her husband. Every time that Mephistopheles says something nice about him, she's weeping and she's crying for him. And every time Mephistopheles says something horrible about him, she's like, yep, that was him. He was the worst. I can't believe how awful he was. Why couldn't he leave any money or anything for his wife and for his kids? Notice her summation here. Oh dear, after my first, it will be hard to find a second man like him again. He was a jolly fellow. Everyone enjoyed him, and he just was far too fond of wandering abroad, and foreign women, foreign wine, and it was that damned gambling that destroyed him. Notice, there's something kind of complicated and something very real about Martha's relationship with her husband. Like, as much as Mephistopheles is kind of playing this for laughs and just playing the same kind of mean tricks that he has this whole time... This all fits with what Martha understands about her husband. 
And the fact that Margarita is sitting there watching this is just more evidence for how love can be complicated. It isn't all storybook castles and kings with their golden cups that they, you know, treasure beyond life itself. No, love is complicated. Um, she, Martha loved her husband, and she hated her husband. Martha's husband was good to her, and Martha's husband was shit to her. Um, Martha's husband was... It's hard to find a man like him again. He truly enjoyed life, but he enjoyed some things about life way too much. That's life. And Mephistopheles kind of finishes this up. Well, I dare say it was a fine arrangement if for his part he allowed you equal liberty. And on such terms, he says, I would hardly hesitate myself to be your second mate. Like, Mephistopheles is seducing, seducing her right here, right now. Like, he has delivered the news of her husband's death, and he's like, hey, baby, husband's dead, not get any younger. You want to do this? And Martha's like, oh, you're having such a fine joke. But they will, in fact, court in the scenes to come. Like, it's not going to take Martha any time at all. There's something silly, and there's something hypocritical, and Mephistopheles calls her a bod, and that's totally appropriate. But at the same time, her relationship with her husband was meaningful, somehow. Even if they both were cheating on each other, somehow they made it work. And this is kind of what Goethe is pointing out here. Love is more complicated than this. Love is a lot of things. Love is occasionally screwy. It is occasionally silly. It is occasionally mean, and it's occasionally nice, and it's occasionally really good, and sometimes not so good. All of that is in there. Um, now, Martha wants evidence, for good reason. Um, the standard way of announcing somebody's death of this magnitude, like to say that you are now released from your marriage contract, is to get another witness. So if you've got two people there to witness, then it's good. So Mephistopheles, of course, goes to Faust and says, Faust, we need to, you know, deliver the news to Martha that her husband is dead. So in scene 14, he says, We swear a deposition warranting that her late husband's bones now are buried in hallowed ground in Padua. So Faust says, Oh, brilliant. So first we have to travel there. And Mephistopheles says, Sanctus Simplicitas, why should we care? Just testify, no need to make the visit. And Faust says, if that's your scheme, then I'll do no such thing. Faust doesn't want to lie. And this is kind of strange. Like, as much as Faust has sort of been, you know, roped into this agreement with Mephistopheles, he hasn't at any point sort of given up his own self-image as a virtuous man. So when Mephistopheles says, okay, dude, we're going to just lie to this woman and then it's going to be okay and I'll seduce her and you seduce Margarita, everything will be great. Faust is like, nope, not going to lie. And Mephistopheles loses it. Oh, holy willy, that's your scruple, is it? So this is the first time in your career that you'll have borne false witness? Have you not laid down authoritative definitions of God and of the world, of all that's here and, here and there? Man's mind and heart, his motives and conditions, with brazen confidence, with all the pride you've got? Faust reminds him of what he said earlier. When Faust was talking about all of his education meaning nothing, how he was leading students astray, Mephistopheles is like, dude, that was false witness. You're really going to, you know, balk at lying now after you've misled all those students, after you've pretended like you knew all that stuff you didn't? And Faust is grumpy about this. He says you are and always were a sophist and a liar, but he's got a point. Like, Faust is grumpy, and Mephistopheles is definitely misusing this information, but it doesn't change the fact that Faust was already a liar in his own eyes. This is not the thing to get upset about. But notice that it does. Faust, as corrupt as he is at this point, 
as much as Mephistopheles has like gotten him to seduce this girl, Faust still wants to believe that he is true, that he is honest, as little as that may actually be the case right now. You know, he was just in Margarita's room, like, not two scenes ago. That's messed up. Why are we getting upset about lying at this point? There's a trickiness to this. Um, now, the next scene I definitely want to focus on quite a bit, because Margarita... We get a lot of information about Margarita in this sort of first date with Faust and this double date with Martha and Mephistopheles as well. Um, so Faust starts his courtship of Margarita and he mentions, like she mentions that she has a lot of housework to do. And Faust ultimately presses her on this and we get this pretty stirring description from Margarita about what exactly her life is like. So Margarita says, you'll sometimes think of me and then forget me soon, but I'll have time enough to think of you. Again, here we have that dichotomy. Margarita is growing fond of Faust. She's being nice to him now. Like, she recognizes that she's attracted to him and she's willing to follow this out to see where it goes. But she also recognizes that this is one-sided. Faust is going to think of her only from time to time, whereas she's going to dwell on him. She knows this, and she's honest about this with Faust. She's like, dude, you know, you're going to forget me in a moment. I'm going to be thinking about you a lot. Um, and Faust says, so you're alone a lot. And Margarita tells him, oh, yes, you see. Our household's not big, but one has to see to it, and we've no maid. I cook and sweep and knit and sew. All day I'm on my feet. My mother insists everything's got to be so neat. Not that she's really poor in any way. In fact, we're better off than most folk, I should say. We got some money when my father died. A little house and garden just outside the town. But mine's a quiet life now. That's true. My brother's a soldier. He's not here. My little sister, she died too. I had such trouble with her, the poor deep little dear. And yet I'd gladly have it all again to do. I loved her so. This one's kind of striking. Notice... Margarita has all the jobs to do in the house. She's the one who cooks, who sweeps, who knits, who sews. They have no maid, even though they probably could afford one, it seems. And her mother is the one who's insisting upon all this, even though, as we find out, her mother actually doesn't lift a finger. So Margarita says, Faust says after that Margarita talks about like her, her little sister dead and gone, Faust says, a darling, just like you. And Marguerite replies, I brought her up. She got so fond of me. She was born after father's death, you see. And mother was so desperately ill then, we thought she never would be well again. And she got better slowly, very gradually. She couldn't possibly, you know, give the baby her breast. And so I had to feed her all alone with milk and water. She became my own. And in my arms and on my breast, she smiled and wriggled and grew and grew. And Faust says, that must have been great happiness for you. Margarita said, but very hard as well, although I did my best. At night she had her little cradle by my bed. She'd hardly need to move, and I was wide awake. Then I would have to feed her, or else take her into bed with me. Or if she went on crying, I'd get up and jog her to and fro. And then the washing started at cockcrow. Then I would shop and cook. That's how I spent the whole of every blessed day. So you see, sir, it's not all play. But you eat well, and you sleep well that way. Notice the story we're ultimately seeing here. Margarita does all the work in her household because her mother won't do it. She used to be sick. 
she's probably still a little bit sick and in all likelihood uses that as an excuse. That's kind of the, the degree we get here. Like Margarita, when she says that she got better slowly, very gradually, it's sort of a past tense thing. She got better. She is better now, but she's in the habit of being sick. Um, so Margarita does all the work, but notice she's not upset about it. At no point does she, you know, accuse her mother of laziness. At no point is she, you know, grumpy about how much work she has to do. At no point does she stress how exhausted she is. Um, she even de-emphasizes it. Our house household's not big, but one has to see to it, she says. And her mother insists that everything has to be so neat. That's as close as she comes to resenting her. But she's not really poor in any way, she stresses. Like... Margarita, every time she's sort of tending toward complaint, she backs it up by, you know, positivity, optimism. But notice she has a lot to complain about. Notice her relationship to the rest of her family. Her father's long dead. Like, they got some money when her father died. Great. So they're well off, but not, like, really well off. They're well off enough that they're, like, solvent. They're living in their home. But Margarita has to do all this work for the family. Her brother, gone. He's off in the army. He's being a soldier, which probably means that he's sending some money home, but probably also means he's not contributing nearly as much as he could. Um, he's probably holding on to a lot of his money as well. Um, but the little sister, notice the story here. Like, the little sister is born to her mother who is sick from the pregnancy and her father is already dead at this point. So Margarita raises this kid. And she describes it in great detail. She feeds the baby. She gives the baby, you know, the milk and the water. She is the one who rocks her cradle, keeps her at night. She's the one who, you know, takes care of her when she wakes up screaming in the night and then goes to work and finds the, the food at the shops, does all the cleaning, keeps the household, all of that. And yet she says... Like, when she describes it in that first passage, she only describes it as, I had such trouble with her, the poor little deer. Like, that was it. Not, you know, it was awful, or I was exhausted, and then she died, and I'm miserable. Like, no. I had such trouble with her, the poor little deer, and yet I'd gladly have it all again to do. I loved her so. Margarita is grateful for the opportunity to give herself so completely to her little sister, even though she died in child, like as a child. She works incredibly hard for her family, and yet she is grateful, like honestly grateful. You can't detect even the, the slightest bit of resentment here, except again in that line, you know, my mother insists everything's got to be so neat. That's as close as it gets. Margarita is happy, even though she has no right to be. Margarita is pleased with her circumstances, despite the fact that people are, like, legitimately taking advantage of her, but she's willing to be taken advantage of for their sake. She's willing to give herself to her little sister, to her mother, to her family. This makes her happy. This brings her contentment. When we say that Margarita is good, that she's virtuous, like this thing that Faust detected even at first glance, this is what we're talking about. She is, like, a deeply good person. She is legitimately seeing the silver lining to a really, really dark cloud here. She has every excuse in the world to be miserable, and yet she's not. She's happy. 
Like, she's being treated like Cinderella here, and yet she's acting like a princess. That takes some real impressive strength of character. Like, Margarita is more than just, you know, good and innocent. She's good, and she has protected her innocence. She is aware of what the world can throw at her, how awful things can get. She is aware of how Faust is likely taking advantage of her. She is aware of how, you know, her feelings could be abused and misused. And yet, she's also deliberate about the choices she makes here. She wants to spend time with Faust. She does find him attractive. She knows that it's probably not real, that it probably is going to be a betrayal at the end, and yet she's kind of going into it anyway. She's complicated in that way. She's deeply good, she's deeply considerate, she's deeply loving of her family. She is deeply faithful and deeply grateful for the opportunity she's had to, to help people. And Faust, again, admires this. You know, who wouldn't? Like, this is a heck of a girl here. This is a heck of a person, like a human being. Margarita is an exemplary human being, insofar as she is getting dealt a pretty lousy hand and playing a really good game with it. She is not letting it get her down. So, this is the woman that Faust is seducing. And that's where things kind of get ugly here. So you'll see the rest of this scene plays out, and we get this great scene of Margarita picking the daisy and pulling off the petals. He loves me, he loves me not. And this kind of takes greater significance than we usually think of it. Like, you imagine, like, a 10-year-old, you know, girl doing this in the recess ground, trying to figure out whether the boy who's been pulling her hair is actually in love with her or not. Here, it's more meaningful. She knows, because Faust has said so, that he's interested in her. The question she's asking is not, does he like me? The question she's asking is, really, does he love me? Is this a trick? Will he be faithful to me? And she ultimately, you know, pulls off the last pedal, and he loves me, she says. And Faust confirms this. Yes, my love, the flower speaks, and let it be your oracle. He loves you. Do you know what that means? He loves you. And Margarita accepts this. So... They clasp hands, she's trembling all over. In the next scene, they even, like, are running around and they kiss one another. Like, there's this description that they're rogues. But notice, Faust can't love her. That's a violation of the agreement that he has with Mephistopheles. Notice in the very next scene in the forest cavern, when Faust and Mephistopheles are alone again, Faust has this moment where he's sort of praying to the earth spirit who he thinks has given him Mephistopheles and who therefore is responsible for uniting him with Margarita he talks about this companion who is dispensable to be to him meaning Mephistopheles that is stirring his heart into a burning fire of passion for Margarita he recognizes that there's a danger to what's going on here and Mephistopheles capitalizes on this so Around line 3300, he says, So, my commentaries offend your modest ears, as well they may, and you cry shame. One must, of course, not say out loud what modest minds are filled with anyway. In short, good sir, by all means, do delude yourself if it amuses you. But you'll soon feel it's gone too far. You're three parts dead again the way things are. Much more of it will wear you out. You'll get the horrors. Go clean mad, no doubt. 
Enough's enough, your sweetheart sits and waits. She's trapped, she pines, she's grieving so. Only on you, she meditates. You are her one great love, you know. Mephistopheles recognizes Margarita has fallen head over heels for Faust. Faust knows that Margarita has fallen head over heels for Faust. It is very obvious at this point. This romance is well underway. Your sweetheart sits and waits, Mephistopheles says. She's trapped, she pines, she's grieving so. Only on you, she meditates. You are her one great love, you know. Your passion's first frenzy was a flood, as when a stream overflows its banks as the snow melts in spring. You poured it deep into her heart, poor thing. And now your streams run dry again. Might I suggest it would befit your majesty to leave his woodland throne? Go to that poor young child and cheer her up a bit. Reward her for her amorous moan. The time hangs heavy on her hand. She's watching the clouds. At her window she stands as they drift over the old town wall. She's all alone. All day and half the night she sings, If only I had a little bird's wings. Sometimes she's blithe as a dove. Mainly she's sad. Often she cries in streams. Then she's quiet again, as it seems. But always in love. And Faust replies, you snake, you snake. Notice Mephistopheles has trapped Faust. That's the problem here. Faust, it's unclear exactly how much he loves Margarita at this point. Mephistopheles in this, in this passage suggests that he's already falling out of love. As he said, your passion's first frenzy was a flood as when a stream overflows its banks as the snow melts in spring. Your passion was a frenzy, a flood. It was like the, the stream overflowing with snow melt. And yet, now your streams run dry again. When you were full of love with her, you poured it all into her. You told her that you would always love her. You convinced her to love you as deeply in response. And yet now you're running dry. Now, it's worth mentioning that, I, that this passage got moved around a good bit. Um, like if you check back in the, the sort of chart that we looked at in the first lecture, the one that shows the difference between the Urfaust, the fragment, and the, the final edition, the, the scene in the cave got moved. Um, it used to be considerably later in the Urfaust, like well into our next reading for next time. It then moved up and then moved up again. And to some degree, I suspect it doesn't actually belong here. Um, but at the very least, what Mephistopheles is suggesting is that Faust is cooling on Margarita. That he has convinced Margarita to fall in love with him. That he, you know, in the fury of his passion, also showed Margarita his great love. And they, you know, fell in love with each other and they're richly involved. But remember, Faust was only ever in this for lust originally. He did fall in love with Margarita's goodness, her virtue, everything that's great about her. But how can you fall in love with her virtue and then take it away? That is Don Juan behavior. That is Don Juan admiring only the act of overcoming their resistance, of overcoming their virtue, of breaking a woman down until finally she succumbs, gives him her love, and then he's done. That's all he wants from her. It seems that Faust is in a similar situation. Now that Margarita is yielding, now that he can kiss her, now that they are making plans together, now that they are thinking about actually, you know, doing the deed... Faust isn't as interested. The stream is running dry. And yet, how destructive 
is that going to be to Margarita? Margarita, who is absolutely convinced that love is the king in his castle with his cup that he always drinks from. Margarita, who is well aware of the fact that with great love comes great grief, comes great tragedy. Margarita, who accused Faust at first, at their first real meeting, saying, you know, you're going to think about me and forget me, but I will think of you always because I have all this time to dwell, to consider, to fall deeper in love. And Faust, of course, assures her, no, that's not the case. I do, in fact, love you. Was Faust lying? And what are the consequences to Margarita in this case? How deep is she in this trap? Because the thing is, now Faust is faced with an impossible decision. Faust has successfully seduced Margarita. Faust may still be in love with Margarita. It's not clear. But there's no way for Faust to express that love now. If Faust did express his love for Margarita, if Faust did, you know, say to himself, yes, I have fallen in love with this woman. I am willing to commit my entire life to her. I'm going to marry her, make an honest woman out of her. I'm going to do everything that I said I would do. I would, I'm going to, you know, eternally love her and eternally be true to her. Well, you'll remember, Mephistopheles has that wager with him. If Faust is ever satisfied, if Faust ever wants this moment to endure, if Faust is ever trying to continue an experience that he has, well, then he loses the bet and Mephistopheles carries him off to hell. Which means Faust can't love Margarita. He'll die as soon as he does. The minute he says, yes, let's commit, let's do this, let's settle down, Settling is how Faust loses the bargain. Mephistopheles gets to carry his soul off to hell and leave Margarita alone. The other alternative is Faust leaves her. Like, Faust almost has no alternative but to leave her. To, you know, render her heart broken. To utterly destroy her credibility. To prevent her from ever actually having a real life with a real husband. She will never be able to enjoy that happiness because no one will touch her. Because everyone will think that she's been corrupted. By Faust, no less. Faust is going to destroy Margarita either way. The only question is, will he destroy himself in the process? So there's no point in destroying both of them. The only choice here is to let Margarita be destroyed. And if his passion is cool, that's ob the obvious choice. He doesn't care. But how horrible is that? How horrible is it that this guy who, you know, never, like, physically could not ever fulfill the love that Margarita expects from him has convinced her to love him anyway? Admittedly, out of the passion that he felt, but, you know, was that passion real? Was it true? Was it honest? Couldn't he, wasn't he aware of what he was leading her into? And notice that next scene, when Gretchen is alone at her spinning wheel. And notice that the name changes. We'll come back to that. She's sitting there at her spinning wheel, and she says, My heart's so heavy, my heart's so sore. How can ever my heart be at peace anymore? How dead the whole world is, how dark the day, how bitter my life is, now he's away. My poor head's troubled, oh, what shall I do? My poor mind's broken and torn in two. My heart's so heavy, my heart's so sore. How, how can ever my heart be at peace anymore? 
First notice the rhythm. It's got this repeatedness to it, like it is timed with the spinning of the wheel as she's spinning it. Like she's doing the work and she's, you know, saying this to herself, keeping the beat of the of the work going. Um, but also notice she's totally lost for him. Her heart's so heavy, her heart's so sore. How can her heart be at peace anymore? My poor head's troubled. What shall I do? My poor mind's broken and torn in two because he's away because he's not here she is done and the name change reflects that like Gretchen is a nickname for Margarita it's more vulgar Margarita is nice Gretchen is not as nice and you'll notice that Goethe will use the the name Gretchen anytime that Margarita has is sort of like thinking of Faust anytime that Faust has taken advantage of her at this point, Margarita has fallen. You know, we saw Margarita the saint, Margarita the, the young girl who took care of her little sister without any res- resentment or upset, who would gladly do it all again because she loved her, her sister so much. Now we see Gretchen taken advantage of by Faust, head over heels for him, lost in her lust and her love for him. Now she is damaged. She is broken either by the view of society or because in her own mind she can't rest content anymore. Now she needs him. Now she has become his victim, so to speak. Now she goes back to being Margarita in this last scene in in Martha's Garden, this last sort of scene where she and Faust are talking to each other. She goes back to being, you know, her. But this is also the last scene where she will be Margarita until the very end. This is the last time that she is in control of herself, in control of her own faculties, that she is not just destroyed by Faust's careless passion for her, not destroyed by her own involvement with Faust. That's the danger that she faces. Now, the last thing that I want to sort of point out is secondary to all this but still kind of important because it gives us a really good idea of how Goethe and Faust for that matter understand God and how the romantic view of God works here you'll remember Margarita is always very concerned about God like she is very pious we meet her coming from her confession when she first receives the jewels she hands them off to the priest she is always very careful always very loyal to her christianity she takes it very very seriously so it bothers her that she doesn't see faust doing the same so she asks him tell me what you think about religion i know you were a dear good man but it means little to you i imagine and faust tries to put her off my darling let's not talk of that you know i'd give my life to you i'd love you so i wouldn't want to take anyone's faith away Faust treats Margarita like her faith isn't terribly meaningful. Like, he's so smart and so knowledgeable that if he were to talk religion with Margarita, her faith would disintegrate. Like, her, his atheism is so strong it would overpower her faith. Which is, A, definitely not how this, ha- how this ultimately plays out. But also notice how he expresses her faith to her eventually. So Margarita finally calls him out on it, but you don't want the sacraments. You don't go to Mass or to confession. That I know. Do you believe in God? And Faust says, My dear, how can anyone dare to say, I believe in him? Ask a priest how. Ask a learned man. And all their answers merely seem to mock the questioner. Faust thinks the question, Do you believe in God, is 
too big for him. How can anyone dare to say I believe in him, he says. So Margarita says, then you don't believe? And Faust replies with this speech, my sweet beloved child, don't misconceive my meaning. Who dares say God's name? Who dares to claim that he believes in God? And whose heart is so dead that he has ever boldly said, no, I do not believe. Embracing all things, holding all things in being, does he not hold and keep you, me, even himself? Is not the heaven's great vault up there on high and here below does not the earth stand fast? Do everlasting stars gleaming with love not rise above us through the sky? Are we not here and gazing eye to eye? Does all this not besiege your mind and heart and weave an unseen visibility all round you its eternal mystery? Oh, fill your heart right up with all of this. And when you're brimming over with the bliss of such a feeling, call it what you like. Call it joy or your heart or love or God. I have no name for it. The feeling's all there is. The name's mere noise and smoke. What does it do but cloud the heavenly radiance? Like most romantics, Faust here describes God as a feeling. Call it joy or your heart or love or God, he says. I have no name for it. The feeling is all there is. If there is a God, Faust doesn't know. Like, Faust doesn't dare to say. It's too big for him. He recognizes that he is small in comparison. Like, you know, the monk by the sea, overpowered by all those clouds, all that ocean, all that rock. He is just a tiny little speck in comparison to the majesty of creation pointing back to God, just like the angels were singing at the very beginning. So... He speaks instead of this awe, this standing in front of the universe and trying to understand one's place in it, this feeling of smallness, and says that feeling is God. The fact that we're here together, that we are able to love each other, that's God. The fact that we stand under the heaven's great vault, that's God. The name God is just noise and smoke, distraction. What's true is the feeling of God, the feeling of God's presence among us. This is very romantic. This is a very romantic understanding of Christianity, and it is very much at odds with the way that Christianity has been talked about by almost all of the other writers we've read in this class, as well as by the Enlightenment philosophers and everyone who's come before. This sounds a lot like atheism, and Margarita is right to question it. Margarita is right to challenge him on it. Margarita is right to ask him about the sacraments. But what's more, notice Margarita's response. It sounds all very well, all very fine, but there's still something wrong about it. For you're not a Christian, I truly doubt it. And Faust says, sweetheart, and Margarita says, it always worried me to see you keep such company. The issue for Margarita isn't all the highfalutin, you know, God is nature and the feeling that you have before nature is, is God. Like, why call it some other name? Why, why confuse things with words? Margarita's like, dude, you hang out with the devil. And Faust is kind of forced to admit this. Notice that Margarita is very aware of Mephistopheles. That man you have with you, she says, I hate him. Upon my soul I do. It pierces me to the heart like a knife. I've never seen so dread nothing I've seen nothing so dreadful in all my life as that man's face and its ugly sneer. It's just that his presence offends me so. I don't usually dislike people, you know. And I'd gaze at you as long as I can, but it makes my blood freeze to see that man. And I think he's a scoundrel anyway. If I wrong him, God pardon what I say. Margarita knows 
whatever Faust has to say about religion, it doesn't matter. Because Faust hangs out with Mephistopheles. And Mephistopheles is a devil. Margarita is aware of the fact that Mephistopheles is a devil on some subconscious internal level. She knows that he can't be good, he can't be a Christian, if he's hanging out with Mephistopheles, who is a liar and, you know, a jerk, and who frequently seems to take pleasure in other people's misery, who spent that entire speech messing with Martha, giving, him, giving her all that bad information, sort of indulging in her grief and her sorrow for his own pleasure. That doesn't jive with what Faust seems to be to her. So she has her misgivings. Now the last thing I really want to stress is the very end of this scene. After this conversation, as much as Margarita has her misgivings about Faust, as much as Margarita definitely has her misgivings about Mephistopheles, at the end of the day, she succumbs to Faust. Faust asks, tell me whether we can have some peaceful hour together, lie breast to breast and mingle soul with soul. As poetic as this may be, Faust is done with the courtship time. It's time to get down to business. Let's have some sex. And Margarita says, oh, if I only slept alone, it would be all right. I'd leave you my door unbolted tonight, but my mother sleeps lightly. And if she were to wake up and catch us, oh, goodness me, I'd drop down dead on the spot. But Faust has a plan. Margarita's problem is my mother sleeps in the same house. She would totally hear you come in and, you know, she'd catch us in the act and we'd never be able to live it down. Like, we'd never be able to enjoy it um we would be caught and she would get rid of you we'd never be able to spend time together together again so faust says my darling there need be no such surprise look take this little flask i've got you must pour just three drops in her drink and into a sweet sound sleep she'll sink faust has a potion give your mom the sleeping potion she will fall asleep she'll be dead asleep she'll never hear us and we'll be fine now, Margarita, once again, has misgivings. What would, I, what would I not do for your sake? But she'll be all right again. She'll wake. Like, this isn't going to kill her. This isn't going to, like, put her into a coma or anything. She will wake up afterwards. And Faust would responds, would I suggest it otherwise? It's not a denial. It's, do you trust me? And the fact is, we should know better than to trust Faust at this point. Margarita should know better than to trust Faust at this point, but she's into it so here we are and this is it i look at you dear heinrich and somehow my will is yours it's not my own will now already i've done so many things for you there's almost nothing left to do as far as margarita's concerned they've already had sex like the damage has been done faust is as much a part of her soul as a part of her body at this point she can't resist his desire at now so if faust says you know give your mother the potion she'll give him the potion or she'll give her the potion it's also important to notice that this line where she says my will is yours it's not my own will now this is the last line she will say as margarita in this text until the very end which will mark another huge change of her character so keep this in mind Faust has given her the potion, they're getting ready to consummate their relationship, they're going to have sex, all the final climax is upon us. And the question now looming over our head is, what's going to happen to her? We know what's going to happen to Faust, we know that he can't stick around, we know that ultimately he's going to have to leave her, whether he's faithful or not. 
Margarita, we also pretty much know what's going to happen. She's going to destroy herself. Like, she's going to destroy her reputation. No one's going to touch her. She's going to be an outcast. That's almost guaranteed at this point. So it's just a matter of seeing it play out now. It's just a matter of seeing, as the romantics always are interested in, the suffering take place. Faust is going to strive. He's going to see this through. Margarita is going to see it through as well. She has no choice. Whatever Faust says she's going to do. The damage has already been done. Now we have to see the consequences.